The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Nineteen sixty-one was the introduction of the pill, the contraceptive pill, and nineteen seventy was the year that the women's liberation kicked off. So that decade saw immense changes, and those two facts—the pill and women's lib—between those two, we've got a wealth of extraordinary experiences for women. That was Virginia Nicholson discussing women's lives in the nineteen sixties. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the social historian and author Virginia Nicholson, whose new book explores women, sex, love and power in the 1960s. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with her recently to find out more. I'm thrilled to be in Penguin's offices in London with historian Virginia Nicholson, whose book, How Was It For You?, explores the lives of women in the 1960s. Um, So you write that it was a decade after which women would never be the same again. And um, I really hoped we could start by just talking about why the 1960s was such a significant decade for the lives of women. Well, we're coming into a rather um, fascinating and extraordinary period post-war. The decade after the war was a time of retrenchment, a time of re-finding women's identity, women trying to uh, re-establish who they were, where they belonged in the world after the enormous upheavals of the the Second World War. Um, 1960 wasn't a turning point as such. The attempt to wrap up decades in small parcels is a lost cause. I think it's not a great idea. Nevertheless, it's something we try to do. We try to make sense of our world. And in fact, um, the decade 1960 to 1970, I was quite lucky in that sense, because it does bookend quite nicely. Um, 1961 was the introduction of the pill, the contraceptive pill, And 1970 was the year that uh, the women's liberation kicked off, Um, second wave feminism, as we now call it. Um, So that decade saw immense changes. And those two facts, the pill and women's lib, are, as I think we'll discuss, not disconnected. Um, Between those two, we've got a wealth of extraordinary experiences for women. Um, We've got 
um, the explosion of music, of fashion, of all sorts of creative uh, uh, ventures. Um, we've got new magazines, new words, new uh, um, new ways of living entirely. Um, but at the same time, we're struggling with the undertow of the past and the undertow of that old life that existed in the 1950s and even existed pre-war. So I see the 1960s as a tug-of-war time for women when the old and the new are embattled. At the same time, all that newness for women comes up against a lot of entrenched attitudes, and those entrenched attitudes sit with the male of the species and so my book is an exploration of what happened really in the sex war. Mm -hmm. And as well as looking at some of the women who for many might symbolise, at least visually, the 1960s, such as Twiggy, or you, you spoke to Patty Boyd, um, you, you also, you know, you look at women in the domestic sphere, you look at women as mothers, as grandmothers, politically. Um, as a social historian, what, what's the, uh, why do you approach it in such a way? So my background is um, that I worked as a television documentary maker. And to me, the attraction of looking at our recent past is that there are people still alive who can tell you about it because they were there. Not only that, I was there. And that's uh, do the maths, work out how old I am. I was actually born in 1955. And so this book was a really exciting one for me to write because I was actually trying to um, answer a few very personal questions. Um, I was looking at my own early childhood and my growth into my teens. This decade for me spanned the years from when I was five to when I was 15. So for me, it's been a decade deeply fascinating because those questions were, did I miss out? Did I have a narrow escape? Was I lucky or was I unlucky? And so I wanted to go and talk to women who had had all the experiences that I felt I might have missed out on and say, well, did I miss out? How was it for you? And that's why I gave the book that title. And I talked to women from all walks of life. I talked to um, to everyone from, as you say, Patty Boyd, who was married to the Beatle George Harrison. I talked to women who were involved in the protest movement. I talked to women who had had amazing drug experiences um, and talked to me about their, their sort of hippie times. Um, but definitely not just all sex, drugs and rock and roll. I wanted to talk to women who uh, felt that they too had been marginalised by the 60s, who lived on the fringes, and even who felt that it wasn't for them. Uh, don't forget the 1960s were the time when there was a very major kickback by women. This was the time of Mary Whitehouse, who founded the National Viewers and Listeners Association. And I found a, a woman who had met Mary Whitehouse and who was a very devout and profound Christian, married to a clergyman. And she talked to me with great intelligence and articulacy about uh, why she found it so difficult to be confronted by uh, the, uh, the shock of the new, if you like, the changes that were happening in youthful society, even though she herself was very youthful. 
Mm-hmm. And I, you speak to um, some women who have very moving stories. Um, you, you, you write about the women of the triple trawler disaster in 1968. And you spoke to a lady called Margaret Hogg. What, could, what can you tell us about Margaret's story? Well, of course, it struck me that um, very quickly, as soon as I started doing the research, and I remembered it too, that uh, uh, 1960, 61 was the key period when women uh, were unlucky, who were very unlucky, were finding that some of them had taken what was then regarded as a wonder drug named thalidomide. Margaret Hogg was a working class woman from Scotland. And uh, she married at the tender age of 17. Marriage was very young in those days. Um, Most women were married by the time they were 25. Um, Margaret got married. Um, She was very soon pregnant, very happy to be pregnant, went to her doctor with a bad cough. He said, oh, yes, take some of these. This will help it, which it did. She then had a straightforward pregnancy and eight months later gave birth to um, a child who had um, very impaired um, bodily functions, very impaired arms, uh, tiny little fingers, um, and uh, all the classic symptoms of a thalidomide child. And um, Margaret has had an extraordinary and remarkable life from being someone very much... um, sort of a working class normal woman who probably felt outclassed by most of society. She'd worked in a shoe shop and then got married and gave up her job. The challenges that life has thrown at her have actually turned her into someone quite extraordinary. And it was a privilege to meet her. Going back to uh, the original um, choice to move chronologically, as you say, there are those bookends that kind of um, really sum up the movement of the decade. And mm. can we talk about the pill? Because it seems like such a well, it is such a significant advancement. Um, what exactly did it mean for women's lives? So the pill was introduced on the National Health Service in this country in 1961. Um, initially, it was only available for us, for married women. Um, because of a a sort of very old-fashioned moral standard that said that obviously if you weren't married, you weren't having sex. This, of course, was not the case, and the abortion rates had been rocketing. Um, The the number of women who had to have shotgun weddings or um, put their children out for adoption was also extremely high. Um, So the pill came as an extraordinary sort of wonder drug that appeared to spell incredible freedom for women. Um, What happened was that um, a lot of doctors who saw it as um, being a a marvellous advance um, prescribed it to unmarried women as well, particularly on campuses you find that... um, uh, even before it was allowed for for unmarried women and before they were able to access the pill through um, birth control clinics, they were able to to obtain it through through their campus doctors. Um, so you get what was called the sexual revolution. Um, the idea being that women could reclaim their bodies, that they could behave as men had always behaved, which in a sense was like, you know, well, you try before you buy. You you have a go. You have a bit of fun, and for many women, this was 
a joy, a release. It spelt incredible freedom. But that freedom in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases came at a price. Because you get the phenomenon, which I ran into really without looking for it again and again, was the fact that um, if there are no penalties attached to um, to being a, um, sexually free, in other words, the breaches of sin are not going to be a baby, um, what's wrong with sinning? So you get the men coming along saying, okay, what's the matter with you? I want to have sex. You mean you don't want to? So what's the matter with you? You must be frigid. Uh, I, you know, is this a problem? And women are saying to themselves, because they don't have the um, vocabulary, in a sense, to to reject the man, everything in women's conditioning had brought them to believe that you placated men, that you said yes to men, that you were uh, somebody who who wanted to um, to oblige your your man. So, of course, they said yes. Now, they didn't necessarily always want to. So, you get many, many instances where basically a man will walk in on a woman and rape her. And um, because the woman doesn't want to, but she doesn't know how to say no. Or she says no, and she is made put in a position where she as basically forced. Um, And that wasn't really regarded as rape. It was regarded as just something you did and you had to put up with. And if you think I'm exaggerating, um, I also looked at sort of the male experience here and I went back to some of the sources and you find a very casual, very kind of... um, uh, morally compromised attitude among men who say, but we're living in a sexual revolution. This is wonderful. Of course, it's very much to their advantage to say that because a man wants what he wants. And um, and so you've got um, men like uh, the late Richard Neville, who was the editor of Oz magazine, that famous hippie magazine that was the, uh, the, the, the that was a huge fuss about in 1972. Um, and and Richard Neville talks about um, uh, obl- an obliging young woman who will lie behind a sand dune on the beach and, uh, and as many men can um, have sex with her as want. Or he talks about having sex with an underage schoolgirl during the ad break while watching a movie. And from his point of view, there is just no problem about this. It's, um, it's free love. It's free sex, there's no bind, there's no marriage, there's no uh, hypocrisy, there's no false promises. It all ticks every box where the sexual revolution is concerned for men. And that's why my book asks the question, you know, the the permissive society was great for everybody, but mainly for men. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it necessarily helped women, but it did it wasn't the the pill was this huge game changer and what it did was it pushed women into a position where they had to find a way of kicking back and and that was um feminism that came along in a very big way towards the second half of the decade mm-hmm. uh, and alongside the the movement of of free love and and freedom that some people espoused there was also um 
the opening of the, the Bunny Club and you spoke to a bunny girl, a lady who was a former bunny girl. What can you tell us about that and her experiences? Yes, I um, I had the um, idea that uh, it struck me that there was this um, Playboy Club that opened in 1966 in Park Lane. It had been imported from America. Hugh Hefner had already created this sort of absolutely amazing, successful um, thing based around the Playboy image and the Playboy magazine. The Playboy magazine was already on sale here. It was hugely successful. My father used to buy it. Um, and I thought, who were these women who who did this? Um, who was it who joined up? So I went out and, uh, and sought to... Um, two women, in fact, who had been bunny girls at the time. And and I got their stories. And it was really fascinating and quite, um, quite riveting hearing about how they were laced into these unbelievably tight and complicated and painful corsets, which pushed their boobs up. And um, Patsy, my interviewee, told me how on the first day she went along and was shown them all, shown the bunny girl dressing room. And one of them coming off duty was taking off her corset and she whipped off her false eyelashes and then she whipped off her wig and she took off her high heel shoes, um, took off her makeup and then pulled all the socks and tissues out from the boned whalebone bra that she was wearing. And suddenly she was a normal person instead of being a, a just just this, um, you know, magical kind of, uh, recreated creature, but um, but if you look at the bunny club, it's very odd to think of it coexisting alongside, um, as it were, the flower children who were all kind of free and easy, no no undergarments at all, probably, um, and and here we have this enclave where. It's almost like a Victorian image. You have these these James Bond types, so they they you know they almost could be kind of old fashioned Victorian gentlemen striking deals over their cigars in some men only club, and floating around them on their improbably high heels are the bunny girls who, again, sort of billowy and deferential and um, a, a sort of just doing whatever's asked of them at the snap of the finger. Um, of course, they weren't wearing the crinolines. They were just wearing cor their corsets. But in every other respect, they're like Victorian handmaidens. So it's a, it's a male fantasy. Um, there was also a very strict embargo, so my interviewee told me, on it was look but don't touch. And of course, all the men did try to touch, and they tried to get your phone number, but you'd be sacked if you gave your phone number. What went on outside the bunny club was another matter. Well, I'd really love to talk about um, two other women who feature in your book um, who weren't necessarily in the world of the bunny club, but they were caught up in the idea of um, women, young single women having fun and the traditional morals of the previous generation. Um, Mandy Weiss Davies and Christine Keeler, who, who many listeners might know from their involvement in the Perfumo Affair 1963. Um, what can you tell us about what you found out about them? Um, well... I don't think I found out anything new because I don't. I think that uh, that source has been trolled to death. Um, what intrigued me about the whole affair and why I thought, 
okay, it's been told and told again, but it it bears retelling in a book about women's attitudes and how what women's experiences are. And that's because there is still a misconception out there that these women were prostitutes um, and that somehow they were to blame for what happened to Profumo and to Stephen Ward. Um, and I don't believe that's true. I think they were maligned and I think they were... Basically, they were manipulated and used and binned. And the level of abuse that the press and the establishment hurled at them was astonishingly disproportionate. They were called every name under the sun from whore to prostitute to cool girl to, you know, it was, uh, it was, they were demonized by the press. Um, and some of those uh, those ways in which they were demonized, you just have to ask the question, why? And I think it's because Christine and Mandy posed a threat to traditional ideas of how women should behave in a sexual partnership. They weren't prostitutes. They slept with men because they kind of liked hanging around and getting a taste of big city life and, and having fun. And all their own sources, however dubious, frankly, that's what you get again and again. Those those sources hold good, that those were girls who were having fun. And they weren't blameless. They weren't saints. I don't want to tell the world that, that Mandy Rice Davis and Christine Keeler were angels. Far from it. Um, Christine was, was a very abused and unlucky woman. Um, Mandy Rice Davis was someone who was in it for what she could get out of it, and that might have been furs and fast cars and, and, and money. But she wasn't in it for, for, uh, because she had to sell her body. She had boyfriends, and she slept with a lot of men. And that idea is so threatening to men's idea of how women should behave. Men have behaved like that since time immemorial, and that's been accepted. It's not okay for women to do it publicly. And if you do it publicly, you have to be strung up and you have to be demonized publicly. And that's what happened. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit Apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. You already mentioned Mary Whitehouse, who um, campaigned, uh, forgive me if I got this wrong, she campaigned against um, 
immorality in television or was it television in general? She was... No, she felt that... um, Obviously, television was uh, was uh, television ownership rocketed during the fifties and sixties. It first rocketed in fifty three with the Queen's coronation, and it just escalated from then on till mid nineteen sixties. You have seventy percent ownership of televisions, which may not seem a lot today, but in those days it was a lot. And um, there was a kind of freedom creeping into the arts, in particular that Mary Whitehouse, as a sincere Christian, found profoundly offensive. And um, her background and her morals told her that this was something that should be prevented and stopped. So, And it was a women's movement. And that's very interesting. These were women who felt that the doors and the barriers were falling down just a little bit too fast, and it was time to rebuild your fortress. And that fortress was traditionally the home. And here was this new piece of technology sitting in the corner of your living room, which um, suddenly had invaded your fortress. And it wasn't right and it wasn't fair to have to turn it off, to have to um, uh, put your own safeguards onto the medium. It had to come from within, at least that was her view. And we may disagree with that. She became a figure of fun for many people. She also was demonized and abused. Um, Personally, I think she was an intelligent woman with sincerely held views that I don't happen to agree with um, because some of our greatest comedies and some of our greatest satire happened in the 60s. Uh, That was the week that was um, Alf Garnet, Till Death Us Do Part. It was that kind of comedy. It was an era of great experimentation in television, um, late night lineup with Joan Bakewell, um, some some wonderful inventive Wednesday plays, for example. But this was something that Mary Whitehouse felt she should hold the line against, and she was hugely supported. But at a, a cost to her, um, she became extremely embattled. And, um, and yes, she was a Puritan, But what's quite interesting is that could a Mary Whitehouse have existed, you know, 30 years earlier, this was a time when women's voices started to be heard, and Mary Whitehouse was another one. Mm -hmm. And you write that, because you're very clear that this counterculture that represents for a lot of us the 1960s, it wasn't for everybody. No, it wasn't for everybody by any means, and actually it was a minority. Um, And and let's be very clear about that. hippies, countercultural characters, the rock chicks, the groupies, the the flower children, um, were were in a very small, small number by comparison. And of course, you know, people had to keep down jobs. So it was on the whole, the hippies tended to be a bit privileged. Um, Otherwise, you might be just a weekend hippie and you'd go off to your festival of the flower children at Woburn Abbey and do it at the weekends and then you go back to your day job Monday to Friday. Um, But we all loved the music. I think people did really genuinely love the music and the music had a voice that spoke for so many people. So there was a kind of level of aspiration that was, it punched above its weight it was through the music, through the clothes, through the fashions, um, and it expressed a sort of 
amazing sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk about the literature um, because your book uh, very early on uh, addresses the uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, which was, uh, you know, hugely significant, and and the, the ban as well. Um, what can you tell us about that? Uh, so I can remember reading Lady Chatterley's Lover sort of under the desk at school and it would get passed around and that was after it was available but it wasn't that easy for 13 14 year olds to actually lay hands on a copy because there was still a good deal of puritanism around at my girls grammar school in those days um the trial happened in 1960 and um uh so penguin won the right to publish i'm delighted to say penguin and my publishers too so it's quite nice to be able to celebrate that um and uh so obviously these these trials are so misguided because the minute you um try and um uh, bring accusations of obscenity in trials like that everyone goes out and buys the book as soon as they possibly can. And, you know, Lady Chatterley's Lover has never been out of print, just as Radcliffe Hall's Well of Loneliness back in the day was never has never been out of print since. Um, the merit of the book is beside the point. The point is here that they uh, that it was um it was very explicit. Um and people went, Wow, I've got to read this. I have really got to read this. Somebody just burnt this book, so I've got to read it before they get bur- before it gets burnt, and um, and so um, what the book was telling young women was that sex was something absolutely incredible, exciting. It was about intense, passionate, physical feelings. It was also, incidentally, as we've just been discussing, it was about, you know, po- posh meets gamekeeper, posh lady meets gamekeeper. Um, and uh, and maybe that has something to do with the, the kind of crossover class thing that we've just been talking about, but um, that's, that's to speculate about. Um, so... Um, so suddenly the expect the expectation after Lady Chatterley was that sex was something to to love and enjoy in its own right. That that had already been introduced. It's not it didn't come out of nowhere. We'd had the Kinsey reports in the 1950s. So the Kinsey report was um uh, very far away from DH Lawrence. It was um it was an anthropology of sex basically uh, created by Dr Alfred Kinsey who was the great sort of sexologist um, who did this huge survey questionnaire across many thousands of uh, of um, respondents in the United States. And he first published the Kinsey Report on the male, followed up a couple of years later by the Kinsey Report on the female. And, and it re- uh, produced very interesting facts that you know, women could have orgasms and uh, that basically um, it took the lid off sex, to put it very, very simplified, in a very simplified manner. But having taken the lid off, it you started to say, okay, so women have to live up to this. It was yet another expectation laid on women. You, um, so if you're not performing in the kitchen, if you're not performing in the workplace, if you're not performing, you have to perform in the bedroom. 
So it was just another expectation. Um, and D.H. Lawrence added another layer to that, but it wasn't an expectation. It was more like this This is something to aspire to, something absolutely wonderful. Um, and I think a lot of young women reading that Lady Chatterley's Lover thought, this is extraordinary. It's um, This is something that's got to be fun, and I've got to try it out for myself, otherwise I'm going to be missing out. Um, and many of the women I spoke to, many of my interviewees said, oh, yes, you know, I really hoped it was all going to be bells and feathers and fans and ripples and uh, chimes, and I was going to faint. They, You know, my friends told me if you don't faint, it hasn't worked. <laughs> um, uh, of course, a lot of them felt very let down. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> right. So, so that came at the beginning of the decade, yeah. and you already mentioned, I think, when talking about the pill, that the the language um, there was a revolution happening, certainly, but the language to ex express some of the inequality just didn't exist yet. But then, by the end of the decade that you're writing about, there's this burgeoning women's lib movement. We're right on the cusp of that movement. So, what can you say about that seed that's kind of gathering so, momentum? So, Eleanor, that's one of the things I found most interesting writing the book was um, there's there's a fairly um, glib interpretation uh, that prevails about the origins of women's lib. A, that um, a lot of women came along and burnt their bras, and B, that it was started by Germaine Greer. Now, both of those are not true. Germaine Greer, let's not underestimate her, she was very, very important, and the female eunuch, which was her great war cry for, for women, came out in 1970 but it didn't come out of nowhere. So we've already talked about how women were beginning to feel a real sense of tug of war, of conflict about should they or shouldn't they give in to this sexual revolution? Was it something to embrace? Was it something to resist? Should they be behaving like men? How could they be true to themselves as women? Did that being true to yourself involve physical gratifications or not. It could go either way. What did you do about those feelings that you were being oppressed? What about the fact that um, there was um, harassment, abuse prevailing on a, on a really completely extraordinary scale? So this was um, very, very common. Harassment was ubiquitous for women. So so how do you deal with that? How do you come to terms with that if you don't have a vocabulary, as you mentioned? The word sexism didn't enter this country till 1965. It crossed the Atlantic. It was first used in a um, an academic paper, as far as I can work out, in the States in 65. The word male chauvinist appears to have crossed the Atlantic. Sorry, words male chauvinist, appears, appear to have crossed the Atlantic in 1967. Um, the term uh, the personal is political first started to filter into the vocabulary in about 68, 69. Now, my heroine is Sheila Robotham, also Juliet Mitchell. These were the early feminist writers. Juliet Mitchell was writing in 66. Sheila Robotham started... Um, trying to understand things from a feminist point of view in the slightly later 60s, 67, 68. She was very, they were both Marxist, uh, sorry, they were both far left, 
Mitchell was a Marxist, Sheila Rowbottom was what was called New Left. And so they started from political stance and with their extreme intelligence started to deconstruct and find words to apply to what was happening to women who were not a minority, but who they felt were nevertheless being oppressed. And trying to disentangle and unpack that was was really, really interesting. And um, and it grew. It grew from small beginnings. It started with little workshops. It um, it started with small protest movements, and and it kind of reached a little mini tipping point in 1970 with the first women's liberation conference, which was held at Ruskin College, Oxford, that year. That was Virginia Nicholson. How was it for you? Women, sex, love and power in the 1960s is out now, published by Viking. And look out for a review of the book in our July edition. Now, before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our Autumn History Weekends at Chester and Winchester, which are taking place from the 25th to 27th of October and then the 1st to 3rd of November. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details and to purchase tickets. And that is all for today, but we will be back on Monday to discuss the Victorians with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. 